through 4 to 6. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Awesome. Thanks, Stanley. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into Colossians. Father, thank you again for this time. Uh, we want it to be important. We want it to be used for uh, your glory. We're so thankful for the time we have to um, just spend with one another and talk and catch up on the week. Um, we're thankful for the time we have to play games and to sing worship songs. Um, these are all good things, Lord, and we're thankful for these gifts, but we're especially thankful for the gift of your word. Um, I pray that this time would be used well. I just pray that this time would be used in which uh, we might come together with an attitude of um, you deserving all glory and with an attitude of desiring that our whole lives would be in your service. That is a good life, a purposeful life. That is a joyful life. That is a life that has meaning. And it's meaning that's come from our creator whose image we are made in um, and whose lives we want to echo because of the example we've seen in Jesus Christ. We are thankful for his perfect life of righteousness that was given for us, that we might be right before a holy God. And we are thankful for um, the punishment of sin that he took for us, the curse that he took for us, that uh, we might be blameless in your sight. And because of that, Lord, because of that glorious gospel, um, on only a gospel that you could have um, given us freely and, and created, because of that gospel, Lord, we want to live our whole lives for your glory. So please um, help me preach this message well. I just pray that um, Paul's truth, um, that is your truth from Colossians 4, 5, and 6, would be clear and that um, we might be motivated to live our lives for your glory. Um, please let your words speak clearly, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. I want to start um, by telling a story that I may have told some of you before. And it happened when I was about 13 or 12 years old, and it was with my friend Tony. My friend Tony was a close friend of ours who lived in the house that was right outside of our townhouse complex, and he was part of a group of friends that we grew up in the complex. 
Um, he was friends with my brother before me, but um, after getting to know him, we became really good friends. Um, Tony was not a Christian. Um, Tony didn't grow up in the church. Um, but Tony demonstrated a kind of friendship that made us always want to hang out with him, and so we were encouraged by our parents many times to bring him to youth group. So he had an explanation that we were supposedly Christians because we went to church, but mainly youth group was about playing games and having certain conversations about the meaning of life. Most of it went over our heads. But I remember one day walking down the street with Tony and thinking to myself about what we were going to talk about. I was still learning conversation at the time. And the one thing I really didn't think we'd get into would be a spiritual conversation because it had never really happened before. But randomly, as we were walking down the street, Tony asked me, I'm happy that you're not like other Christians. And I was a little surprised, and I asked him, why is that? And he said, the Christians that I know are so stuck up and strict, and I'm happy that you're not like them. I'm happy that you're nice to me and that you don't get mad at me for all this stuff that other Christians seem to get mad at. I think one thing I really like about you is that other Christians seem to get so mad about swearing but you're a Christian, and you swear. And I remember at that moment, I had absolutely no idea what to say to him. I actually don't think I said anything to him. I remember going back to that moment, why I swore. I remember I wanted to fit in. I remember I wanted to be funny. I remember that I liked using the power of language that could shock and excite and surprise people. I liked all those things. I was also really trying to be a good friend to Tony, and honestly, my biggest motivation was that if he swore and enjoyed people who swore, then I thought being a good friend was doing the same thing. But I also knew that I would never, ever act that way if I was in front of other people who were Christians, and I would definitely not act that way in the church. And I didn't exactly know why I wouldn't act that way. The most important question that a Christian can ask themselves is this. Am I living in a way that pleases God? Am I living in a way that pleases God? Am I living in a way, the way that Paul would say it in Colossians, am I living in a way that's compatible with my new identity in Christ? That's part of the discussion that Paul got into in Colossians 3, 5 to 14. Part of being a Christian isn't just believing the gospel, but it's putting on certain attitudes that are compliant with the gospel and it's taking off certain attitudes, getting rid of certain behaviors that are not compatible with the gospel. But even after Paul already had that discussion with us in Colossians 3, Paul still gives us this command in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and verse 6. And this is actually going to be our last command, or rather commands, that we're going to get in the book of Colossians. This is the last commands that he gives us. Verse 5, Paul says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Part of being a Christian isn't just living a gospel-driven, godly life. Part of living the gospel is considering how I live when the outside world is watching me. If I go back to my moment and I ask you this question, think about how you would answer it. Can I be a Christian and still swear? Can I be a Christian and still swear? I think a lot of us, if we understand the gospel, we'd say yes, because there's no sin that I could commit that would take me away from a relationship with God. Christ died for all of my sins, and if swearing is a sin, then Christ died for that too. So yes, I can be a Christian and still swear. 
But the reality is, if you are a Christian and you don't care about your language and your behavior, or if you are a Christian and you don't think that your life should look differently than people around you, then you are giving off serious red flags about the kind of gospel that you believe in. And that's a different gospel that Christ gave us and that Christ has been presenting through us, through Paul, in Colossians. If you live that way, that the gospel doesn't change your life in any way, and it doesn't change in front of unbelieving people, then you're living a life that's saying the gospel doesn't demand a change in my life, and I can believe in Jesus and live like the world. I can live in a way that the world likes and the world appreciates, and Christ can still be happy with me. When I think about my relationship with my friend Tony, I know that I loved him, and I know that I was trying to be a friend to him, but my problem as someone who grew up in the church was that I didn't know how to be the friend he wanted to be, me to be, and at the same time be a friend that Christ called me to be to him. The point that Colossians has really been trying to stress to us is summed up really well in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, which says this, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. All of life, everything, is about Jesus Christ. And therefore, we live all of life so that Jesus Christ would be pleased with us. As we seek for his will to influence everything that we do in our lives, the result is that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. What Paul is going to conclude for us today is this, that part of living for Christ is being a Christian before non-Christians being a Christian before non-Christians, which means that Christians don't change from Sunday to Monday. When we walk in and out of church, in and out of our homes, into school, before our friends, on our sports teams, in our jobs, and in our future education, all of those things are all under the lordship of Christ. And as we do that, as we live with full dependence on the Lord, we can accomplish the amazing mission that he's called us into. And that mission is to invite outsiders into the kingdom of Christ. Last week, we were reminded to pray for the gospel to progress through the world. Today, we're being called to live for gospel progress, that our lives would be a witness of the gospel and how life-transforming it is. And that means considering how we walk and how we talk. How we walk and how we talk. Today, Paul's final commands are going to be concerned with how we live for the Lord and we live before unbelievers in a world that has no idea how much it needs a savior. And as you can see on the screen, what we're looking for today is Paul's commands to walk and talk so that we participate in the progress of the gospel. Paul's commands to walk and talk so that we participate in the progress of the gospel. The first part of that, Paul already set up for us in verse 5, which is this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The point that Paul is really talking to us is that your life, which he calls your walk, is supposed to be one of wisdom. Wisdom is really the key word. And it feels funny that I would even preach a whole sermon on this because last Sunday was all about this. Momming well means living a life in wisdom, and that's really applicable not just for moms, but for everyone. Wisdom is practical knowledge. It's knowledge that changes how you live, and it's knowledge that explains how you are to live. It's knowledge applied. And when we're talking about wisdom, we want to be really specific and say, 
We're talking about God's wisdom. We're talking about God's wisdom. What God has revealed is a kind of knowledge that radically changes your life and makes it so much different from the wisdom this world is giving you. And so Paul is saying God's wisdom is supposed to be the standard. It's supposed to be that thing you go back to more than water, more than food. God's wisdom is how you are to set your standard for living amongst unbelievers. Christians live in a way that we live in the way that we do, rather, because we trust that God alone is the person who can teach us how to live. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. This is something that we would say is just natural to a Christian. Wisdom means learning how to live from the Lord. It means trusting that God has revealed what a good life should look like. But what we need to remember as we're living before outsiders is that is the fundamental failure of everything that it means to be in the world. To be an outsider is to reject God's wisdom. To be an outsider is to borrow so much from God and yet not call him Lord and not call him Savior. The fundamental problem in the world is that they live by a different wisdom, which means they live by a different standard. Paul explains this, and Isaiah actually explained this to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, that the world has its own kind of wisdom. And that's why Paul said to sum up that whole statement in 1 Corinthians 2, 5, that your faith must not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. One of the things that Colossians has been explaining to us is that wisdom and Christ are synonymous with each other. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says Christ became to us the wisdom from God, but we heard it in a beautifully poetic way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, which says, in Christ are hidden all of the riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To walk in wisdom means to ultimately go back to Christ and ask Christ, how do I live? And that's important because we often think that the only way that we invite unbelievers in is to look like them, talk like them, and respond like they would. We need to be on their media. We need to dress like them. We need to know current trends. We need to know what's popular. We need to play the games they like. We need to eat the food that they eat, and we need to meet them where they're at. And I absolutely don't want to tell you that those things are unhelpful. Those things are helpful. But you also have to understand why they're doing the things they do and that we as Christians live by different standards. Because if that much of the world defines who you are, then it's going to be very easy to be part of the world and not part of what Christ is doing in the world. The world is all headed towards the same place and we desire that they would not go there. And so not only do we point them to Christ, but we point them to God's wisdom that is fulfilled in Christ and we show them that this way to live is so much better than anything that this world has to offer. It seems relevant to bring in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, where Paul explained to Christians, you need to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and not shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The whole point of living for Christ one of the greatest things that we have as people who are on mission for Christ is that your concern for unbelievers around you shouldn't make you act the way they would assume you would, but act exactly the opposite way. That you would live for Christ, and as they observe you living for Christ, they would know naturally that something is different. That won't define everyone, because not everyone will know Christ at the end of the day, at the end of eternity, but 
Some people will. And your opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness to them is never going to start with what they should want you to do, but start with what Christ wants you to do for them. That's the order that Paul is explaining when he says that we are to walk in wisdom. Walking without God's wisdom is like being a fish out of water. You're trying to reach the world and slowly suffocating without oxygen. And it might lead you to the fact that you'll enjoy the world so much that you'll forget why you were trying to lead people out of it in the first place. So what we're doing is not coming to people and saying, I'm smarter than you, you're doing everything wrong. You're coming and saying to them, I have everything wrong, I am a sinner, and I depend upon Christ alone, and I want that to define your life as well. It means living a life that's so dependent on God's wisdom that everything about life really comes down to a couple of things. Glorify God, live under the lordship of Christ, and desire that unbelievers would see in my life how the gospel radically changes everything, including my life. And that's really why Paul naturally goes into the second part of verse 5 and defines what it means to walk wisely. He explains walking wisely means making the best use of the time. Verse 5 says, making the best use of the time. I think all of us have probably said or we've heard someone else say, I've got better things to do. I've got better things to do. And if you've thought of someone saying that, just think for a sec what that means about what they're saying about their life. It means I believe I'm in charge of my own life and I'm in charge of how I spend my time. And I don't want to waste it doing this. This feels like a waste of time, so I'm going to stop doing this and do this. I'm going to choose how I spend my time. As Christians, we need to step back for a sec and we observe our life and observe our schedule and we start with the fundamental idea of the gospel. I am saved by Christ. And that should naturally lead us to another consequence, which is this. My time is not my own. My time is not my own. The reality of the gospel is that we've been redeemed from a wasted life. A real waste of time is spending time on ourselves. And I don't mean resting, and I don't mean enjoying your time. I mean spending our time for our own glory. That was the life that we lived that led us towards judgment. The only hope that we had to be saved from the curse of living a life for my glory is called redemption. Redemption is who I am as a believer. I'm redeemed by Christ. And that means I've been bought by Christ. That's what redemption means, that I was bought by Christ. By God's grace, the cost of my sin was paid by Christ, and now I can live in eternity with him. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.13 when he says, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Everything that was leading me towards judgment was paid by Christ so I can live a life for Christ's glory, and when I die, I'll walk into eternity with him without sin for eternity. I've been bought by Christ. And now I've become useful for gospel purposes. Now, why are we talking about redemption? The reason we're talking about redemption is because making the best use of the time is literally translated redeeming the time. Making the best use of the time literally means to buy back or to buy out your time. It means that we are all in the business of going into the marketplace of life every single day and we're buying back all the time we can and we're using it to do things that matter. And I'm doing that because Christ bought my life and therefore my time is to be spent however God wants me to spend it. As one pastor I read said, we exist for Christ. Christ does not exist 
for us. I think the argument that I tend to slide into, and maybe you do too, is that I don't have enough time as it is. I'm already living on a small amount of time that I can spend doing all sorts of things that I want to do that I can't actually do. But if we were honest, we need to start by analyzing the time we don't spend well. Because I think all of us would agree that there's a significant amount of time that we waste. And if there's any time that we waste, what really is happening in that moment is that we're not appreciating the value of time. We're not appreciating the value of time. I was thinking this week, and I watched the clip just recently uh, from The Dark Knight. There's a scene where the Joker has done something for the mob, and they give him like millions and millions of caches of money uh, that are all lying there in this massive, massive pile. And to this mob boss's surprise, the Joker takes a lighter and he throws it on the money and he sees like hundreds of millions of dollars burning and his face is like, ugh, just seeing the value of money burn away into nothing. And I think if we could put ourselves in the situation and we could see our time being wasted like that, if we could put all of our wasted time into a pile and we could just set it on fire, I think we'd realize how valuable our time actually is. And it would definitely make us desperate to take back as much of that time as possible, to buy it back and say, God, I don't want this time burned. I want it being used for your glory. I think there's another argument we can also make against this, which is you can say, a lot of my life is actually doing things I don't want to. Many of you guys are living according to your parents' schedule, and that's totally part of life. And for that argument, I would refer you two weeks ago to Josh Feaster's message on what it means to work heartily for the Lord and not for men. Ultimately, any time you have doing things that you find no value in or you don't think could ever be redeemed can be redeemed by your attitude and your love for Christ to be Christ-like in that situation. Any piece of homework, any conversation with someone you don't want to talk to, any argument you have with someone who you feel is wrong, all of it can be redeemed if you live at it with an attitude of how do I preach Christ in this situation? Now the argument for not having enough time and the argument for not being able to glorify God because your time isn't your own, both of those Paul is getting at are very important to buy that time back for this reason. Ultimately, if you're a Christian, all of your time is heading towards one conclusion, eternity with Christ. That is not the case for the unbelievers around you. That is not the case for the unbelievers around you. And if you are an unbeliever, that is not the case for you. The reality of buying back your time is not just so you can live your best life now. It's so that other people can realize they are missing out on eternity right now. The reality for the Christian is that we are operating on a limited time only so that other people can be restored to Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says a similar argument here, he says the reason is because the days are evil. That means the days can play tricks on you. It is easy for sin and the brokenness of this world to make the days feel useless and long and difficult. And if you feel that as a Christian, we can only imagine what that is like for the unbelievers around us who are living out evil days that are leaving towards eternal judgment. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28, Paul explains that there are foolish and wicked people who are, have feet that are running towards evil. But eventually, he says, they lie in wait for their own blood and they set an ambush for their own lives. Which means everything an unbeliever does is against themselves. They have no idea 
that there is an eternal judgment at the end of their life in which Christ will rightly divide the wheat from the chaff. The, wheat will be, the chaff will be burned and the wheat will go on to eternity with Christ. That should make us care about our time. The way I, Pastor Isaiah said it to me once is this, every choice that you make to do something is a choice to not do something else. The goal of this sermon is not to tell you every single second of your life needs to be spent on evangelism. We're going to talk about that in a sec. The point of this time is to say how much of your time is being used towards faithfulness to Christ. Ultimately, there's an order here. It's my life and everything can be used for Christ and it can be used for eternal purposes. And that's amazing because we never had that opportunity. But as a result of that, God is going to open the door for unbelievers to observe your life, for the blinders of sin to come off for just a moment, and they might think there's something more in you. And you can tell them that more is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means we should go to our second point. Verse 6, Paul says this, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Now, the second point here is this. Not only must you walk wisely, but you must talk wisely. You might notice he doesn't say talk wisely in Colossians, but the point is that this talking is part of walking in wisdom. They're not necessarily two separate commands, but we're taking them separately so that we can just talk about talking for a little bit and what it means to talk as someone who is in a relationship with Christ. Paul's point is this. In the same way that we should value our time, we should certainly value our words. Words are valuable. Words are powerful. I could give you many cross-references for that. But because I believe we've talked about this a little bit and because I think you know this, I want to go straight to how Paul is talking about how we share and how we speak about the gospel and how we really speak about anything in hopes that it would eventually lead to the gospel. And so really there's two ways that you are to talk wisely, how you speak wisely. And the first one is this, you talk graciously. You talk graciously. I think many of us know the parable of the unforgiving servant, that there's a servant of a king who has a massive debt that is impossible for him to pay off, but the king in his grace, who represents Christ, forgives him completely of this debt. And the servant leaves, and he runs into his own servant, a second servant, and that servant has a debt to pay to the first servant. And instead of the grace that the first servant received from the king allowing and affecting his life so he forgives the second servant, he doesn't, and he throws that servant in jail for a much smaller debt than the first servant has just been forgiven of. And I think even if you told that to someone who didn't grow up in the church, someone who's not a Christian, they'll understand the point that Jesus is making, which is this. That first servant is a hypocrite. That first servant should recognize that grace should radically change his life and make him act in the same grace that he's received. And that's the same point that Paul is making in our section. Paul defined these Colossian Christians in Colossians 1.6 as this. People who understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is telling the church in Colossae, you get grace. You totally get it. You understand it's amazing. You understand it's life transforming. So let it out. Let it come out and affect the lives around you. Especially unbelievers' lives. And let it affect the things you say to them. Literally, the way to say verse 6 is this. Let your words always be in grace. 
Let them be soaked and saturated in grace. Let grace always be present in that conversation. And he explains that exact same point in a second way with the next words he says. He says, season your words with salt. Now that phrase has been debated amongst a lot of people who are much, much smarter than me. So I'm not trying to throw in my two cents here. I'm just trying to say what I think the easiest explanation of what Paul is doing here in saying season your words with salt. Think about a conversation like a song, like a well-choreographed song. And in a well-choreographed song, there's usually two parts. There's a harmony and there's a melody, a harmony and a melody. Now, the melody of a conversation is all the stuff that's on the surface, all the stuff that you notice right away. It's just the words that you're talking about. It's the conversation about someone's life and family. It's talking about an interesting story or topic. It's even explaining the gospel. That's the melody of a conversation that everybody's noticing. But in every conversation, there's also a harmony. The way Pastor Isaiah would say it is, there's a vibe. You can be saying a lot of things and someone can be saying, I don't believe what you're saying because the vibe is weird. Things you're doing, things you're saying, stuff that you're hiding in your heart that you can't hide because it's naturally coming out in the conversation. That's the harmony of a conversation. I think what Paul is saying when he says, season your words with salt is this. Whether you're directly talking about grace or not, the harmony, the vibe of your conversation should always be grace. Grace should affect the things you say. Grace should naturally come up and it should naturally be soaked in. If someone were to take your words out like a sponge and wring it so that all of the info and content of it came out, it should all be grace. Everything should be radically affected by the fact that you are a person fundamentally identified as under grace. Every single step of our lives is under the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. That changes how we act. Now remember, this isn't a kind of manipulation tactic. This isn't saying a kind of fake grace should be in you so you pretend like you're someone you're not. It's just saying if you're a Christian and understand the grace of God, then you're naturally going to speak graciously to other people. This is naturally what's going to whet the spiritual appetite of a non-believer and be able to show them and tell them in honesty, not lying, but in honesty, friend, it is good to be a Christian. It is good. It is the best life you could possibly live, not only for the immediate effects and consequences, but because of the eternal treasures that are being stored up into me, and it's all by Christ's grace. That's not only the words, but the vibe of our conversation. And if that can be done for God's glory, then you can also take the second tip that Paul gives us about how to speak wisely. This is the second tip, is to talk specifically, to talk specifically. Paul says, you may know how you ought to answer each person. That is the consequence of speaking graciously. Before I go there really quickly, I want to point you to another passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Paul gives a little bit of a counseling tip to the people in Thessalonica where he says this, we urge you, brothers, number one, admonish the idle, number two, encourage the faint-hearted, Number three, help the weak. And number four, be patient with them all. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, there's a little insight into Paul's counseling tips. Two things. Number one is he says, no matter who you're talking to, be patient with everybody. Everybody deserves patience. It's part of grace. God has been patient with me every day. 
and will be for eternity. So I am to be patient with everyone. But the second thing, the second counseling tip that Paul gives us is that people are to be responded to differently because people are unique and people are different. People have been going through different things. He mentions three. There's an idle person, a faint-hearted person, and a weak person. And all of them should be counseled a little bit differently. Idle people should be admonished, faint-hearted people should be encouraged, and weak people should be helped. And that's not an exclusive counseling tactic. Everyone needs help, everyone needs encouragement, everyone needs admonishment. But it means if you are a gracious person, you are someone who listens before you speak. You listen enough to really know the person you're talking to. You listen enough to know who they are and what they've been through. And that changes the kind of emphasis you have on certain topics. Everybody needs the same thing, the gospel and Jesus Christ. But everyone also needs recognizable demonstrations of love. Recognizable demonstrations of, I know who you are. And therefore, you can speak and emphasize different parts of the gospel that they desperately need to hear. You can highlight and emphasize different things because people have different troubles, different questions, and different concerns. Certain people have suffered immensely in their life, and they need to understand the comfort and the fatherly nature of our God. Some people are not serious about sin at all. And that means in your friendship, there should get to a point where you tell them in love, you need to be serious about your sin because there's eternal consequences to your sin. And as you get to know people graciously, and as you take the time to get specific, you'll start to know how you are to answer everyone differently. Now that might seem counterintuitive to the fact that we're to make the best use of our time but that truth by itself might make us rush into every single conversation we can and say, gospel, gospel, gospel. But if you take the other truth over here that we tend to say but never actually apply, which is that God is sovereign, it means that God has given you enough time with everyone. God has given you enough time to listen, and God has given you all the time you need to share the gospel at the appropriate time. God is a good God who demands our faithfulness, and as a result, he helps us live in a way that we can answer people appropriately and still make the best use of the time. There's one other thing before we close that I want to mention about answering, which is that answering is more passive. Answering is a response, which means you're not running to every single person you know and asking questions about their spiritual life at every single moment. It means that fundamentally, there's part of your life where you're starting with a concern for your own spiritual state. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. I think for a long time I was really confused at what that passage meant because it sounds like Paul is telling the Thessalonians stop evangelizing but he's actually not saying that at all he's saying if you're proud of this gospel don't jump into its power so quickly that you're throwing the gospel in people's faces before they're ready before they've seen anything about who you are and your behavior the gospel produces patience and I'm not saying that so you stop evangelizing at all. I just want to equal out some expectations we have about what it means to be a faithful Christian as a junior higher or as a high schooler, which is this. 
I think so often we can think that the only way I can be faithful in my school is to start the Christian club or to post billboards or pieces of Christian information on my billboard or to share the gospel at least three times a day. That's the only way I can be a faithful Christian at school. And again, those are amazing things. And that requires a lot of boldness that I pray the gospel is producing in you. That's awesome. But if you think the only way to be a faithful Christian is exclusively evangelism, you need to take, back, take a step back and look at the strategy of verse 5 and verse 6, which is this. Number one, be faithful. Consider your own spiritual state and do everything yourself with an attitude of worshiping Christ and working for God's glory. Number one. Number two, live by the gospel. Not only love the gospel, but live by it. Let it naturally have consequences of good works in your life. And then number three, pray that God would provide, as he's promised, opportunities for unbelievers to observe your gospel-transformed life. And as people ask you questions, be prepared to give them answers. Now, that doesn't mean knowing the answer to every question that's out there. It just means being faithful to point them to Christ. The answers that you have to give people are not, here's the answer to every single question. It's simply this, Christ has all the answers. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You need Christ. You need the gospel. How are we to live faithfully, walking and talking? To answer that question once again, I want to give you a brief story that I read. An 11-year-old boy from Oklahoma, whose name was Devin Johnson, saved two people's life in one day. He was 11 years old. The first one was because there was a student in his school who was loosening the cap of his water bottle. It accidentally fell into his mouth and he started choking. And as he was choking, he wandered into the classroom that Devin Johnson was in. And as soon as he saw it, he immediately jumped up from his chair, ran over to the boy, and performed the Heimlich maneuver. And it saved his life. The teacher asked him how you knew the Heimlich maneuver, and he said very casually, I learned it from YouTube. He ended up getting picked up from his mom and heading home from school. They noticed that there was a house they passed that was burning at the back of the building. Many people were leaving out the front door of the building, but he noticed as he looked inside as the car stopped to observe what was happening that there was an old woman with a walker who was having a hard time coming out. Before any of the other people who had rushed out could notice what was happening, Devin jumped out of the car, which was already stopped, and he ran into the building, and he helped the old lady out of the burning building. He then casually got back into the car and went home. Of course, after the story got around, news people started coming to them and asking him questions, and he was eventually awarded a kind of heroic award for his saving two people's lives in one day. But when he was interviewed and asked why he did those things, what motivated to do those things, he simply said this, I don't think I'm a hero. I just think it was the right thing to do. Being a Christian is living an ordinary life and doing the right thing to do. That means, first of all, asking God, what is the right thing to do? The right thing to do is all over the Bible, and the motivation to do those right things is always the gospel. But doing the right thing to do, according to Paul in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, is really this. It is your opportunity to share the gospel. As you try to determine what's the best way to open up someone else to the gospel, 
You don't start with pressuring yourself about how to get into every aspect of your life or know everything that's going on with them. You're not omniscient. Being a good witness of the gospel is this, loving the gospel and then living the gospel. Wanting the gospel to redeem all of your time that you may walk and talk wisely. And as a result of that, God has promised that he will open the door of opportunity to share the gospel with people who desperately need it. And if you love the gospel and if you live by the gospel, you will jump to those opportunities because it is too good and too glorious to miss out on an opportunity to invite an outsider into the kingdom of Christ where there will be no more sin, death will be destroyed, and we will feast forever when Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth. Lord, even as we hear these words, I pray that we would be faithful believers. I pray that we would be faithful evangelists, but I pray that we would be people who would be patient, people who would both redeem our time that we may personally be enriched by the spiritual truths you have for us, and also, Lord, that we would live faithfully enough that we would attract people to the gospel. We pray that we would not be hiding in the bubble of Christianity, that we would not be hiding in our churches or in our homes, worried about how it is that we're going to survive in a world that is against us. Lord, we were against ourselves when we were in our sin. We were bound towards judgment. But as a result of your truth and your gospel, you radically transformed us. And therefore, we don't want that joy to remain inside our homes or just inside our church. We want to go out and we want to demonstrate that the gospel changes everything in life. We want the glory of relationship with Christ to be so amazing that we would want to live it before as many outsiders as we possibly could. That they might be invited into the truth of the gospel that is not only the greatest motivation and the greatest purpose giver in all life. It's not only the ultimate truth that is undeniable, but it is supernaturally transforming. It casts a light on an incredibly dark world. So we pray that we would live like the lights that gospel-believing people are called to be. We know we will not be perfect. We know that all our perfection that was needed to be right before you, holy God, all of that perfection was given to us through the perfect life of Christ. So we are not living, Lord, we pray in a legalistic way that would try to earn salvation. We just pray we would live faithfully. We would love you. We would worship you. We would want to live for you. And as a result, invite other people into that amazing truth that is this. Sinners can live with a good, holy God as Father forever. Lord, let that motivate us to live lives worthy of your gospel calling that we might invite outsiders into the gospel, into a relationship with you through your son Christ, and into the greatest life that could possibly be known. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.